Please turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 3, where we'll pick up at verse 9. Isaiah chapter 3, picking up at verse 9. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken His place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of His people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness, Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. Branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she, she shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for wisdom and guidance as we come to study your Word now. As ever, we come to your Word in a posture of dependency, praying for the help of your Spirit that He might open this to us and that He might apply it to our hearts. Father, speak, for Your servants are listening. Amen. It is easy for us to underestimate just how attractive sin is. And I think that maybe even the longer that we go on as Christians the less we tend to estimate the attractiveness of sin. Now, yes, the, the longer we go on in our Christian lives, the, the more we come to hate sin, the more we come to hate the sin that remains in our lives, 
We know that we still sin, but with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, we say, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Right? As we go on in our Christian lives, we increasingly see the ugliness of our sin, and we are painfully aware of its continuing draw on us. But as we see the ugliness of our sin, and as its luster dims, there is a risk that we begin to underestimate just how dangerous sin is and just how subtle its allure can be. With minds filled with the hatred of the sin that we are all too aware of, we can begin to grow negligent when it comes to the temptations that still surround us. So it may be that you have struggled with lust for as long as you can remember. Prior to your conversion, it wasn't really something that bothered you. In fact, it, it entertained you. You enjoyed it. But since your conversion, you've been fighting it. And despite setbacks, you have made progress. But you know that to keep making progress, you have to always keep your eye on it, a constant watchfulness about what you look at and where you go and what you listen to. But while you're on your guard against lust, covetousness slips in. And you can begin to indulge your desire to rise in the social ranks, to be seen in the right places, to drive the right car, to live in the right neighborhood. That covetousness slips in unannounced because it doesn't look like sin. And it doesn't feel like sin. At least it doesn't look or feel like the sin that you are so actively fighting against. Or maybe it is that you know your covetousness. Maybe you know that you once lived your life simply for the accumulation of wealth and status. You said to yourself that you would do well in college, that you would go and you'd get the right internships so that as quickly as possible you could rise that corporate ladder. But it was hollow and it burned you out, and your testimony is that Jesus saved you from that life of all-consuming covetousness. You still feel it. You still feel the draw, but you fight against it, and despite the setbacks, you're making progress, maybe even to the point where now you are able to enjoy once again the finer things of life without giving to that ungodly craving to get more and more of it. But while you're on your guard against covetousness, you increasingly break the sixth commandment. Now, it's not that you want to go out and murder someone, but you find yourself nursing grudges to keep them warm. You find yourself indulging hatreds of those who have crossed you. You find yourself fantasizing about the revenge you would take if you had the opportunity. It slips in unannounced slowly at first, but then building and building until you carry an open hostility against those who 
across you. And while we examine ourselves, we all know of the major sin or sins that we are battling on this daily basis. It might not be lust, they might not be covetousness, but we all have them. Sins that, whether by nature or nurture, we are particularly prone to, and which we need to be deliberately, daily mortifying and putting to, to death. But it doesn't take much self-awareness to realize that there are a legion of other sins that come in subtly and slowly to the point that we hardly notice them. Blind spots that might be visible to others, but which we hardly notice. And so, we need to ask, well, why is that? And why is it that, that breaking the law of God is something that we can face on the one hand with such hatred and such revulsion, that we can face with such determination to counter it, but on the other hand, we can entertain almost unconsciously. Well, thankfully, God in His grace has given us in the Bible sections like this one that we're looking at this morning that use vivid metaphor to help us break this down and see the dynamics and the economics of sin so that we might be more aware and better equipped to be on our guard. Now, the central image of this text, the one that this whole passage revolves around, is the picture that we find in verse 16. The daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Now, in the message, Eugene Peterson paraphrases this by saying, Zion women are stuck up, prancing around in their high heels, making eyes at all the men in the street, swinging their hips, tossing their hair, gaudy and garish in cheap jewelry. And Eugene Peterson is stuck on a very vivid paraphrase, but honestly, I, I don't think it really captures the scene that Isaiah is depicting. But Eugene Peterson turns these women into some kind of gaudy caricature. They're loud and they're brash, they're crude in their ostentatious displays. I think what, what Isaiah is describing is something that's a lot more subtle, something that's a lot, that is a lot more inherently attractive, something that is powerfully attractive. But instead of thinking of them as gaudy and garish, I think we should, we should picture these women more in terms of Hollywood actresses, or maybe, maybe even better, Hollywood actresses in those Christmas perfume commercials. Right, these are women who confidently walk into a room, and when they walk in, everybody's eye is on them, not to, not to snicker at their gaudy display, but, but their, their eyes are on them almost in, in, in awe. These are women who, who strut into a room with a confidence, with a poise, and who look around them with, with piercing eyes and they get the thing that they want to get. These are strikingly beautiful women, women whose beauty disarms all those who are around them, 
and who are able then to use their beauty and their style to manipulate the world into giving them what they want. These are, these are 8th century BC social media influencers, right? That's, that's the image that Isaiah's giving. And he describes them here on the one hand simply because they are part of life in 8th century BC Jerusalem. And as such, they are symptomatic, or maybe emblematic of the degeneration of that 8th century B.C. Judean society. The presence of these ostentatious women was just another part of that degeneration of Jerusalem into just another cosmopolitan capital. Right, do you remember from a couple of weeks ago especially, but we've been really noting this all the way through. Jerusalem was supposed to be a capital city unlike any other capital city in the world. Israel's human king was supposed to be a king unlike any other king in the world. You remember from Deuteronomy 17, God explicitly said, that Israel's king was to be free from the trappings of wealth and status and power. And instead, he was to be a, a scholar. If there was a defining mark of Israel's king, it was that he was a man who studied Scripture and who was faithful in his obedience to it. What Deuteronomy 17 said to Israel was that their king was essentially to be an executive entrusted with performing the will of God who sat in the temple as the true king of Israel. And with that, the whole character of Jerusalem and Judah was supposed to be shaped and informed by their union with God by grace. Israel's king was supposed to be a personification of everything that Israel as a corporate people were called to be and were called to do. As a whole society, their primary concern was to be how God had revealed Himself in Scripture. And flowing from that, their lives were to be marked by by hopes and, and dreams and ambitions and loves and cares that were wholly unlike those of the surrounding nations. Israel was to be a people who were marked by a distinct peace that comes from the knowledge that God is in control and He only has the best interests of His people at heart. But of course, the tragedy of the book of Isaiah is that by the 8th century BC, they had just become like everybody else. Their king, just like everybody else's king, was caught in an arms race. The people's confidence, just like everybody else's confidence, was found in the state of the economy. And the gods and the cultures from the surrounding nations were welcomed into Jerusalem. And so these women stand here, in a sense, as as emblematic of that degeneration. Instead of this society being personified by a pious and worshipful king, It's best personified, Isaiah says, by these cosmopolitan women who flaunt themselves and who aggressively dominate those who are around them. But listen, it's important we get this right here because it's easy for us to get off 
down a wrong road of a misogynistic interpretation of what's going on here. Right? The problem is not that these women are strong and confident. Right? The Bible is not afraid of strong and confident women. In fact, the ideal woman in Proverbs 31 is a woman who is incredibly strong and confident and able, a woman who is able to engage in the marketplace and take part in politics as well as take care of life at home. And so understand the problem that Isaiah is describing here is not that these women are not just barefoot and pregnant at home. The problem is that they are using their physical attractiveness to dominate and intimidate those who are around them. Or in other words, they are using the world of the senses to manipulate and assert control and to rise to a position of power and influence. That is the way in which they are emblematic of life in Jerusalem that life that had devolved from a substantial and faithful pursuit of the love of God and the love of neighbor to now nothing really more than a superficial quest for significance in which both God and neighbor, especially the poor neighbor, were disregarded. Jerusalem, as personified by these women, had, had descended into the world of the senses, What mattered to them was what could be seen, what could be felt, what could be heard, what could be tasted, what could be touched. That was their world, and that was the standard by which they measured things. That's what these women represent. And here God says that He will not let it stand. The day is coming, God says, when this all will be turned upside down, and the proud and the arrogant will be humiliated. A day, he says, verse 24, when the beauty of these women will be taken away, and instead of their perfume, there will be the stench of rottenness. Instead of beautiful and elaborate belts, they'll only have a a rope. Instead of, of beautiful hair, well set and impressive, their hair will be out of their heads, they will be bald. Instead of a rich dress, a rich robe, they'll only have sackcloth. And instead of their beauty that they have used to attain power and significance, they will be branded as slaves. What God is saying to them, what God is, is warning them, is that if they put their trust and their confidence in themselves, if those in 8th century B.C. Jerusalem continue to put their their confidence in, in their strength and their skill, God is saying a day will come when that strength and skill will be tested and it will fail. The warning here is that the world of the senses, which can seem so alluring now, is in reality utterly hollow. It's, it's Las Vegas, right? Nothing in Las Vegas is real. All of it is a, a beautiful imitation that has no substance. It glitters, it shines, but it's nothing more than paint. 
make up like these women. But it's the nature of sin. It promises so much, but it delivers so little. And so having gone the way of the world and pursued things which are outwardly impressive, what God is promising here is that they will see in the Babylonian invasion just how worthless all of these things are. So how do we apply this? Well, I think there's three areas in which we can apply this. The first is to those of you who have not yet put your faith in Christ, but who are intent on building your lives on your own wisdom and in your own strength, right? Maybe that's you. Maybe you approach life with a total self-reliance. You're a self-made man. You've pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, and you don't need anything from, from anyone. Or maybe you're just young, maybe you're starting out, and you're dreaming of the life that you want to build, and you're determined that you will do things on your own terms. You'll do it your way. You know what you want. You know how you're going to get it, and no one is going to stand in your way. Right? And maybe that works. There are many tremendously wealthy people who have gotten that way because of their grit and their determination to do it their own way. They've grounded out. They've put in the work, and they've no one to thank except for themselves for where they have achieved in life. Maybe you achieve your goals. And this doesn't have to be in the realm of Jeff Bezos and $165 million mansions, right? Maybe your goal in life is just to middle it, to just be comfortably middle class, nice husband, nice kids, nice car, nothing spectacular but solid. And maybe using your acumen, your education, your skills, your network, you can do it. But there's a warning here that this world is not everything. That this world of the senses is not everything that there is, that there is a world to come. And there is a day that is coming, a day of judgment. And on that day, everyone who has labored for themselves and for their own glory will, like these women, crumble before the justice of God. There will come a day when God will, verse 13, take His place to contend a day when He will stand to judge the peoples, and everything that you have built and clung to and worked for, it will all fall away. In His famous sermon, The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards put it like this. He said, your wickedness makes you as heavy as lead and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and your best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. That's the image here, isn't it? 
for all of their swagger, they had as much ability to resist the wrath of God as a spider's web can resist a falling rock. And so, if you're sitting here today confident as a self-made man, a self-made woman, the word of warning comes and says, while everything may look good now, and while you may be prospering now and enjoying the fruits of your labors now, while your life might, according to the world of the senses, be prosperous and beautiful and solid, a day is coming when God will judge your work. And if you have not labored for His glory, and if you have not enjoyed union with Him, if you have not focused your life on Him and served and loved Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then this word of warning comes and says, on that day, everything that you have built will crumble and fall away before Him. But secondly, this is true within the church. And we might even say that this is more true applied to the church. Remember, Isaiah is not preaching to atheists. He's preaching to people who profess to have faith in God. You remember all the way back from chapter 1, while all the people of Jerusalem were doing all of this and, and achieving all these worldly goals and becoming beautiful and powerful and impressive, they're still claiming to be faithful worshipers of God. They haven't rejected the faith. And so this isn't just a word of warning for those who are out there. This is a word of warning for us who are in here. And it's the warning that you can go through all the motions and you can be faithful in your church attendance and you can be diligent in prayer and you can be active in ministry and still be functionally relying on yourself. Or even worse, you can be doing it all for your own accolades and your own advancement. Right? It was Jeremiah who, ministering to the same people just 50 years or so after Isaiah, it was Jeremiah who wrote, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right, and that's true of all of us. We all have mixed motives in everything that we do, including our church attendance and our service to the church. We all have mixed motives. But for some of us, we look at the church and her ministries and see it as a way of building a life around ourselves and as a way of building, achieving our own goals. Right, Carl Truman, professor of theology at Grove City College, once recently quipped, if you're a narcissist and you don't want to put in the work to become a lawyer or a surgeon, become a minister. Now, it was, on the one hand, a facetious dig at lawyers and surgeons, but he's making a serious point about the dangers of vocational ministry. And I think we can even bring it down into the dangers of lay ministry and the dangers of being a ruling elder and the dangers of being a deacon or even the dangers of being a volunteer. If you are a narcissist, it is easy to come into the church and to try and build your little kingdom here. It's easy to go into ministry because you want to have power and control and status. 
Right, and it's not just true in mega churches, it's true in small churches, maybe even more true in small churches, because here is a little needy congregation, and I can come in, and I can make myself a big deal here. And it's true for members as, as much as it's true for officers. The, the church is a little pond. Even the biggest churches are little ponds, and we can posture and maneuver to become big fish. And the warning comes to us that if that is you this morning, the day is coming when all of your motives will be laid bare. The day is coming when the Lord will take His place to contend when He will stand to judge the peoples and all those who with bluster and buff and the raising of a facade have worked to convince those around them that they are a big deal. There is a day when, when you will be humiliated. Your cynical abuse of the bride of Christ will be laid bare and you will be crushed before the justice of God. It's verse 14, the Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of His people. And He will say, it is you who have devoured the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. And it is the warning that you might be able to hide behind flash or professionalism or feigned piety, but it will not go well with those who have misused the ministry of God to build their own little empires. It will not go well with those faithless shepherds who use the flock for their own glory. But there is, I think, one final point of application here, and it brings us back to where we started. What is it that makes sin so attractive to us? What is it that makes a life of self-centered, self-righteousness attractive to us? What is it that makes the manipulation of the church attractive to us? Or maybe just even on a more mundane level, what is it that makes our everyday temptations to satisfy our greed or our lust or our pride to engage in deceit or falsehood or any such thing, what is it that makes that so attractive to us? It is that sin is just like these women. These women don't just stand here in verse 16 as a personification of Judah's problem. They stand here as a personification of your problem. They stand here as a personification of sin itself. What is it that compels the desire to be a self-made man? What is it that drives you on in the tireless pursuit of building a life for yourself just the way that you want to have it? Why is it so important for you not to rely on anyone else but to go it alone? What is it that compels the abuse of God's people by its leaders, its members, its volunteers? What is it that turns the kingdom of God upside down so that the radical ethic of self-sacrifice becomes a corrupt ethic of self-service? It is that sin is just like these women. It's, it's beautiful, it's alluring, it's seductive. It promises the whole world to us. It says to us that if only we had that, then everything would be wonderful and we would be happy and all of our cares would float away. 
like these women, sin comes to us confidently, beautifully, and it whispers to us that if only we had it, then we would have everything. These women, I think, are the same women that appear in Proverbs 2, where the father says to his son, urging him to heed his words of wisdom, he says, if you if you follow the path of wisdom, you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Or that woman who reappears in Proverbs 5, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Or best, Proverbs 7, for at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near the corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market. And at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. That's Isaiah 3, isn't it? Sin promises everything. It looks beautiful, but it only ends in death and destruction, in humiliation and in defeat. It looks beautiful. It's alluring. It's tantalizing. It seems to promise the world, but in the end, it's worthless. It's, it's Las Vegas. It's two-by-fours and drywall and plastic, all painted to look like gold and silver, but worthless in the end. It carries us along with its promises. It enamors us with its seductive stare. It comes to us with its literally sensual bidding. Oh, wouldn't it feel so good? Think how impressive you would look. Just wait until so-and-so hears how significant you are. 
But like those proverbial young men, we are persuaded, we go in, and we end up like oxen to the slaughter. But in Proverbs, there's another woman. It is the Lady Wisdom, and she comes to us and offers to us the remedy. In Proverbs 1, wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Or Proverbs 3, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. That's the antidote. That's the solution. That's the point that God through Isaiah is pressing on us here. How do you keep yourself from sin's seductive snare? It is by walking in the way of wisdom. And what is wisdom? Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So how do you keep yourself from this self-destruction that is cloaked as self-fulfillment? It is by seeing God and savoring Him and considering the bounty of union and communion with Him. It is by seeing God and worshiping Him as the one in whom alone true joy and satisfaction is found. How do you find forgiveness for your self-reliance and your self-centeredness? You find it in the fear of God. You find it by looking at the cross and seeing the incredible grace and mercy of God towards selfish idolaters. You see the great love of God for sinners in sending His own Son to die that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will be given eternal life. That is to say, the great love of God for sinners, that whosoever believes in Christ will not face the hell they deserve for their sin, but will be caught secure in God's gracious hand and brought into union and communion with him near to God in whom the fullness of joy is truly found. And Isaiah's purpose here is not to pound you. It's not to grind you down into the dirt. Isaiah's purpose here is the same as that of Jesus in Matthew 6, where he warns, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. What God through Isaiah is saying to us is, don't be led by your senses. 
They are untrustworthy guides. They will lead you down into the grave. Look at God. See His goodness. Revel in His grace. Worship and adore Him for His abundant loving kindness to worthless sinners. And you will be saved now and forevermore. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that every one of us is prone to follow after that seductress sin. And she comes and she is convincing and beautiful and alluring and we want to go after her. But we pray that instead we would make Lady Wisdom our companion and that we would walk with her that we would fill ourselves up with the Word of God and that we would see reflected in the Word of God the deceptiveness of sin and that we would see the veracity of your revelation. Lord, help us to fear you, to worship you and adore you and to obey you in all things that we might give you the glory that you alone deserve. Amen.